Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. I just want to say a special thank you to all the people that have been supporting our show lately, either by leaving us reviews or by supporting us financially. If you would like to support us, you can go to our Patreon, which is located at www.patreon.com slash history of California to support us financially, or you could leave us a rating and review. The ratings and reviews are equally as important, and they help people click play for the first time. So either one is wonderful and will go a long way to support this podcast. All right, now let's get to today's show. I don't often get recommendations for episodes, and when it does happen, it is rare that I was already planning to do an episode on whatever topic is suggested. But that changed with today's topic. Pio Pico. Pico was the last governor of California before the U.S. invasion and represents someone that experienced all three phases of control during the various colonial periods of Alta California's history. Pico is interesting in many ways, and some ethnic and some political and some personal ways. So, let's meet this final Mexican governor of California. Pico was a first-generation Californio. Remember, Californios were small in number and essentially lived on the frontier amidst many native groups. Pico's ancestry is interesting, but before we get to that, let's review the various ethnic groups that the Spanish, during their colonial period, categorized people into. So, we know, of course, that there was the Spanish, the native, and the Africans. Um, and when any of these groups would mix, they would be referred to as castes or castas. Um, and the offspring of a black and white family, and by white I mean Spaniard, uh, these were referred to as, these people were referred to as mulatos. Uh, people of Spanish and native ancestry were referred to as mestizo. And then there wasn't really a term to refer to people of native and African ancestry. Uh, the terms were used kind of interchangeably. And so when no one term made sense, they would use castas. What we do know about Pico's ancestry is that his grandmother on his father's side was listed as a mulata on a census document from the mission system. And his paternal grandfather was listed as a mestizo. So in many ways, Pico is kind of an amalgamation of all of the colonial vestiges um, of all the intermixing with ethnic groups that came to represent California and Alta California. Now, Pico's father served in the military and reached the rank of sergeant before dying soon after in 1819. Pico's older brother, Andres, was also an important figure in Alta California's history, and we'll meet him again later when we talk about some of the important battles in the Mexican-American War. Now, Pico grew up for the most part in San Diego, with a brief sojourn at the San Gabriel Mission that we just keep coming back to. Now, like I said before, Pico's father died quite early, uh, when Pico was just 18, and Pico... Uh, at that point, essentially assumed 
the responsibility for caring for his family. He did that by opening a general store in San Diego that sold a variety of goods. The purchasing for the store, the supplies that they sold, allowed him to build relationships with other Californios uh, up and down the coast of California. These relationships would become the foundation upon which he built his political career in California. Of course, two years after his father's pass, the War of Independence occurred, uh, which ultimately inspired him with a kind of a new sense of freedom and possibility. Uh, this idea that he could participate in the building of a new society, uh, which he, as he was in his personality, immediately jumped into. He was elected to serve on an advisory board to the governor of Alta California in 1826. Now, in my research, these bodies that are referred to as diputados uh, served to build uh, political power in these kind of decentralized frontier domains. Essentially, Pico became an arm of the state and was absorbed into this kind of political project that was trying to shift power away from the missions to this new uh, political control. Uh, in return, Pico would receive large land grants like we've seen previously with many of the important Californios. These large land grants that he received in return would allow him to become very wealthy. The next step in Pico's evolution was that he aided in the secularization process of the mission system that was underway in the 1830s to move the land from the missions toward these land grants. If you remember the dynamics that we discussed between the military of the Presidios and the Franciscan monks, we can kind of think about that in context of Pico's father, uh, who was a member of the military. Pico's father likely shaped the way Pico uh, viewed the missions and the military, which led him to be a big advocate of the secularization of the mission system. During this period, Pico married Maria Ignacia Alvarado. Uh, their wedding was one of the major social events in Alta California history during the Mexican period. In fact, there's an amazing picture of the event that you can look up online. Uh, not only was it an important event, but important people came too. The governor of Alta California was actually Pico's best man, and they had some of the best music um, from the whole country of Mexico uh, playing at their wedding. Now, if you think about it, in a lot of ways, what we've talked about before, Alta California was really small in terms of the population of Californios, just a few thousand. Um, and so ultimately, even though it's such an expansive place, it has the characteristics of being a small town in that a lot of the people that we'll meet will be connected to the people we've met before. Um, and so it's just a helpful way to think about things. I mean, when we think about California today, we think about such a large populous state with so many things going on and millions and millions of people. But at this point, you know, obviously not including the native people, which is its own thing we can talk about, uh, the California society was quite small. Now, Pico's wealth and power continued to grow into the 1840s. He and his brother were granted an enormous plot of land in the San Diego County, where Camp Pendleton currently sits. I actually used to go to Camp Pendleton as a kid. My dad was in the military, and I 
remember going to these beautiful deserted beaches all along the beautiful San Diego coastline while the uh, soldiers that were serving at the military base were at work. And I remember just being totally empty and looking at this beautiful landscape and thinking what it would be to live here. Pico was granted 133,331 acres of land along this area where Camp Pendleton sits. And let me just stop for a, a second to gripe about something. Uh, and it's something that bothers me quite a bit. Who actually knows what an acre represents anymore? I know we use acres kind of fast and loose. Um, and beyond a farmer, someone that interacts with this concept in a, in a, you know, in a tangible way, uh, many of us don't really know what it is. I, have, I feel like I have no sense of it. Um, but something I do have a sense of is what a square foot is. After living in some of the most expensive cities in the United States, I have a deep understanding of what a square foot is and how much that square foot costs. Now, to put this in terms that many of you will understand, one acre equals ex approximately 41,560 square feet. Pico was granted 133,331 of those. Now, if we convert that to square miles, he was granted 208 square miles of land. Now, of course, there were native people living on this land. And to say that he was granted land means in so many ways that he was granted the privilege to do violence in a certain area and to use the land the way he wanted. And to be honest, I don't even really like the term granted because inherent with it is the idea that it, it was someone's to grant anyway. Like there was an ownership there to begin with. But if you could just take a step back for a moment and think about Southern California and think about how much land that actually is. It's just mind-altering. Um, just completely mind-altering. Anyway, uh, Pio Pico throughout his time had been involved with politics. Pico served as governor for 20 days in 1832 after the then governor of Alta California was ousted for refusing to uh, continue the process of secularization in the mission system. Pico ran for governor two years later in 1834 and lost to Juan Batista Alvarado, not related to his wife. In fact, uh, the contention uh, be between them and him and the governor uh, continued during Alvarado's tenure, and Pico was actually jailed multiple times uh, during that period. During this time, Pico was also appointed as the leader of the assembly, which is kind of the legislature and would serve as governor again in 1845 after replacing the ousted governor Manuel Michel Torrena, who was seen as an outsider, uh, being appointed far away by the Mexican president in central Mexico. Manuel was from a wealthy Basque family in Oaxaca, and he served for three years as the governor of Alta California before being booted after losing the famous Battle of Providencia. Alvarado replaced... Uh, Alvarado was replaced by Manuel Torrena, uh, Michel Torrena because of an attempted coup led by the fur trader Isaac Graham, who we have not covered in this podcast. You know, got to pick and choose ultimately. Ultimately, this coup by this fur trader was a sign that manifest destiny and the United States intentions were real. And so the president of Mexico thought that Michel Torrena. 
was the general that could effectively protect Alta California from these uh, people trying to subvert their power in the territory. But Michel Torreno was very unpopular. People on the frontier wanted to be left alone to do the things that they, the way they've been done for a long time. And we've seen throughout history um, that this is true. If we think about the change in attitude in U.S. history after the French-Indian War, when the colonies uh, had their relationship adjusted with England um, and taxes, even small taxes, causing such a stir in the colonies, that ultimately led to the War of Independence. So we can see that when a central power tries to control things in the frontier, uh, frontier resists. It's a, it's a theme. Now, ultimately, the battle between Michel Torreña uh, took place in the Cahunga Pass, um, and the Californios uh, defeated them and installed Pico as the governor. War broke out soon after with the United States and Mexico, and Pico believed his best move was to flee to Baja and wait out the conflict. His brother Andres led the, some of the forces against uh, the U.S., but was ultimately defeated. Following the end of the war, Pico returned to California, believing that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo uh, still gave him the right to serve as governor. Of course, we know by now that uh, the U.S. wasn't going to give in to that request, uh, and the U.S. government kindly asked him to step down from political life and government. Now, Pico, like Stearns, was wealthy, and had an expansive private life to return to. But sadly, following this war, his wife died just a few years later. Pico, though being a large landowner at that same time, had benefited from the gold rush following the war. Now, During the Civil War period, Pico had to confront the large presence of a pro-democratic party and pro-slavery contingents in the city of Los Angeles. And given what we know about his Afro-Mexican ethnic identity, these issues were not only theoretical for him, but deeply personal. He looked up to Abraham Lincoln and was a staunch Republican. Um, and this was a deeply personal battle for him uh, that ultimately he was on the right side of. Now, Pico continued to pursue financial goals, including investing in the first petroleum company in Los Angeles, and building in a massive hotel downtown called the Pico House Hotel on the southwest corner of the old plaza in downtown. The building cost $85,000 to construct, which translates to, into roughly $2 million in today's dollars. He did have two issues that would follow him late into his life. His profligate approach to spending money, and then the creditors who would hound him for that money. Like Stearns before him, Pico would end up in almost near poverty, living off an adopted daughter at the end of his life. He died in 1894 and was buried in Los Angeles next to his wife's plot. Now, I had not heard of Pio Pico when I lived in Los Angeles, but I do remember driving down Pico Boulevard, which was a street named for this last Mexican governor. And I remember the restaurants where I would sit on the street and enjoy the beautiful Los Angeles afternoons in the 70s, uh, not knowing uh, who the street was named after. 
In Whittier, you can visit Pio Pico State Park. Uh, Pico built a home in this area of land that he had owned uh, after the Mexican-American War. And in the 20th century, people began to buy up the land in this area, and there was a fear that Pico's legacy and home would be lost. Uh, but an old friend of Pico's, a tremendous woman in her own right, Harriet Williams Russell Strong, who was serving, at the, who was serving on the Whittier Chamber of Commerce at the time, worked to preserve the land. Uh, we will come back to her in the future. She had her hands in so many different pots in the history of Los Angeles and the women's movement. The state park was actually renovated as recently as 2003. Pio Pico is a fascinating character in so many rights. Um, but he, he's amazing because of all the changes that he witnessed in his time. Three different countries and governments uh, in and out of power, uh, massive wealth and massive poverty. Uh, in a lot of ways, Pio Pico is American story. And I'm not just referring to America as the United States, but America in that he, in his own ancestry, included all of these different groups combined in one and lived a full, fascinating an important life. Until next time.